Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Programs, DEI for short, is the basis for a cultural shift within many companies. DEI can be described as the policies and programs that attempt to lift the barriers obstructing access to employment and promotion opportunities and embrace participation by marginalized and overlooked groups. According to the website Glassdoor, more than three out of four job seekers and employees view a diverse workforce as important when evaluating companies. Additionally, stakeholder groups, including customers and investors, insist that corporate leaders make fundamental cultural changes to align with their values. While many DEI programs have stalled or failed to demonstrate their intended outcomes, we're fortunate to hear from someone who has successfully implemented a global DEI initiative. Dr. Rohini Anand, whose book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, provides a framework of principles for launching such programs. Dr. Anand's experience working at Sodexo, a multinational company with over 400,000 employees, has defined five key principles as a framework for implementing a successful DEI initiative. She is a strategic business leader and corporate advisor who has successfully transformed cultures to align with the changing face of a modern workforce. Rohini, welcome to our podcast series. Thank you, John. Happy to be with you. You know, we're thrilled that you could join us. I had an opportunity to read your book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. As we speak today, I want to just let our listeners know that we will use the acronym DEI, and again, that just means diversity, equity, and inclusion. So let's get started. Rini, tell me a little bit about yourself, and maybe you can weave into that initial discussion sort of what experiences in your life made DEI your focus and passion. Thank you, John, and thanks for getting the book and reading it, and I appreciate your feedback. You know, this question about DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion It's very personal for people. It's not, you know, it's not just a job. It really, I see it more as a calling. And, you know, my story is obviously very integral to who I am. And DEI is very much part of my story. So, you know, by way of background, I grew up in Mumbai, India. And growing up in India, you know, almost everyone looked like me. I belonged to the majority religion, Hinduism. And surrounded by others like me, I had the privilege of, really not having to think about my identity. Mm. And it was my move to North America as a young, single woman from India, student, which was an inflection point in my, you know, literal and metaphorical journey. And, you know, that move, my identity shifted from being a person who pretty much saw herself as the center of the world. I went to an international school in Mumbai, as I said, I was part of the majority, and it moved to being a minority, an immigrant, and a foreigner. And I was really totally unprepared for that. You know, it was only when I was identified as a minority that I realized the privileges that came from being part of a majority. It wasn't I was part of a majority growing up in India, and I hadn't really recognized my privilege in that way. So, you know, this realization that identity is situational, that it's fluid, informed my research, my PhD research, and continues to inform my work today. And understanding what it means to be perceived as an outsider is very much at the heart of DEI work. And my work is about leveling the playing field so everyone can succeed. And I, you know, I'm really privileged that my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. I love the story. And for those who will pick up the book and read it, you share a lot of those 
early experiences in it, and it certainly comes through. You defined it very well that it's very much a personal experience. And part of this really brings us to culture, culture that you started with, culture that you then came to here in the United States. And you discuss at length in the book about both societal as well as organizational culture. So let's talk about that a bit. What is organizational culture and why is it important when you're considering doing a DEI initiative? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really critical. So if you think about sort of organizational cultures, they're really based on shared values, shared beliefs, shared patterns of thinking that align around employees around sort of common outcomes and decision making. Mm -hmm. And very often it sort of trickles down from the leader, right? It's a reflection of the leader's values and perspectives, and leaders set the tone and role model patterns of behavior, and these behaviors then get rewarded and reinforced. And culture is critical to DEI because to be sustainable, it has to be rooted in the culture of an organization at the deepest level, its values. Mm -hmm. And this starts with leadership that sets the direction. So inclusive leaders, you know, they set the tone by making themselves vulnerable, by learning about DEI, they communicate the benefits of DEI to themselves and to the organization. They measure DEI as they would any other business imperative. They hold their teams accountable. So, you know, I think the leadership piece in kind of forming the culture and the values of an organization is absolutely critical. And change happens, as I say in the book, at the intersection of people and systems. And for for a culture to be inclusive, DEI has to be embedded in the systems and processes. There are sort of the guideposts for the culture. And that's where DEI has to get embedded in both the people as well as the processes. What's fascinating, and people, I don't think, while, yes, every organizational culture is somewhat unique, it is also a reflection of societal culture. And what are the beliefs? And, and you, you point out in the book uh, how people view who are the minorities, who are the leaders, who are the privileged within society. And that's sort of very idiosyncratic to the individual locations that you had to work with. Absolutely. You're, no, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, there's an incomplete social justice journey in the broader society that gets reflected within an organization. So you're absolutely right. And it, it varies from one location to another. So, yep. I was reflecting your experiences and I thought, gee, change is difficult in most forms, but cultural change across a global platform seems almost fraught with complexity and resistance. And how do you sustain it? So maybe you could take us through the process of how you actually implemented a successful DEI program. When I worked with Sodexo, it had at its peak 480,000 employees in over 80 countries, right? Mm. And what was interesting is I was the chief diversity officer and senior vice president for corporate responsibility there. And what's interesting is that, you know, they were in over oh, whatever, 50,000 locations. So how do you bring about this change in such a geographically dispersed footprint, if you will? And given the complex and dynamic nature of doing culture change work, DEI work in a global context, there's really no checklist or playbook or, you know, best practices are not adequate. And what I found was that each time there were these five elements that I thought really was were pivotal to drive success. And so I recognize some of these that I call principles that provide a through line in, in my book, and I'll talk about them if that's okay with you. Sure. But each principle is sort of a, a simple statement, and it includes 
my experiences. It includes anecdotes and experiences from other colleagues as well. They're simple, but they're very disruptive. My intention is not to provide sort of a plug-and-play template based on what's worked in the U.S. And I think that that's been one of the foundational mistakes is to replicate what's worked in one part of the world and sort of plant it in another part of the world. But these principles can be applied with sensitivity to any culture, and they really do empower global leaders to develop their own solutions without mimicking any one experience. Mm. So the first one is make it local. And what I found was that the global DI change has to be anchored in an understanding of the local context. It has to be rooted in local particulars, informed by the history, the culture, the language, and the laws of each place. And to do that, you have to consider how identity is defined, how it's expressed and perceived, and also be very aware of power structures and identify dominant and subordinate groups because these vary depending on where you are. So understanding the context is a first step and then finding strategies to advance underrepresented groups locally based on your understanding. But understanding a context doesn't mean accepting the status quo. Because I think that outside influence can be a catalyst for change. Outsiders can raise issues that those in a culture may not be able to see or be able to raise because of you know, power dynamics or because they're politically charged issues. But it works best when local change agents are empowered to find the right entry points and ensure relevance. So the first principle is make it local. One of the things that came through loud and clear in the book is that you brought local teams together. And you mentioned the word change agents. So talk to yep. me about the talk to us about the importance of engaging with local groups and then defining a group of change agents to foster the DEI initiative. Yeah, so I you know, I have a couple of examples in the book and the one that sort of stands out for me is one in Saudi Arabia. There's a leader who and I think it's best illustrated, your question is best illustrated through this example. So leader who, you know, went to Saudi Arabia, a French man and the situation at the time was very restricted for Saudi, restrictive for Saudi women. They had to work in a separate space. It started opening up so that, you know, Western companies could actually hire Saudi women to work in their offices. So he saw that as an opening. And what he did, you know, he accommodated the women in a separate room. You know, you couldn't enter. You had to speak through an intercom. There had to be a Muslim male chaperone if you wanted to, uh, you know, enter the room, etc., so he, he abided by all of those things. However, he saw an opportunity to really advance women and advance their careers in that office. And when things started, you know, opening up, the women themselves sort of, you know, wanted to be more involved in meetings. But the men, the Muslim men in that office objected. and They said, you know, no, they have to be accompanied by one of us. So he said, well, if you have the time to accompany them to every single meeting, that's great. But the work has to get done and they're interested in having these meetings. So how do you propose to solve it? So their solution was that the women could meet with non-Saudi men in, in an office if the door was open and if they were sitting at the opposite ends of the desk. Now, that was a simple solution. But here what he did was these were the local change agents. He allowed them to sort of determine the rhythm and the relevance and the entry points in this. He also basically reached out to those that were most resistant to help them come up with a solution. So, you know, change agents can be anywhere in an organization. They, you know, they can be those that are passionate about the topic. They may be those from the dominant group 
who want to help. There may be those that are most resistant. So you just have to figure out who these change agents are and help to, that can help to disrupt that status quo and come up with solutions. I, I hope that answers your question. Oh, yeah, it does. Thanks for that insight. Appreciate it. Please. The second principle I think that's really critical is you know, what I call leaders change to lead change. And we know that a commitment to inclusive leadership by senior leaders is absolutely fundamental to ensuring that DEI is sustained in the culture. And when leaders embrace DEI with authentic purpose and passion of DEI, and oftentimes this this requires a disruption of their worldviews. And, and this often happens, it can happen with data and facts, but very often it's experiences. So just, you know, just really quickly, I remember this one situation where the former CEO of Sodexo, Frenchman, we had a global gender strategy and he had a conversation with me one day and he said, you know, I'm not sure why you are talking about things beyond gender like race and ethnicity. So I realized in that moment that I needed to sort of expand his worldview on this particular topic. He was right. You know, in France, um, race and ethnicity does not translate in the same way. In fact, the word race was bra- banned from the French Constitution in 2018. But I realized that I had to sort of expose him to some of these issues in other parts of the world as well. So I invited him to an employee resource group meeting that we had in Texas. And this was hosted by the African American Employee Resource Group. He was one of the only white men in that room, one of the only French men in that room. And that experience was very disruptive for him, both being a minority, but then also listening to the stories of primarily the African-American men in that room really had a profound impact on him. And he went on to write this really heartfelt message after the murder of George Floyd that he shared with the entire organization. I don't think he would have done that had he not had this experience. So I think it's sort of you know, these experiences that can shift uh, mindsets. But I think we have to be very careful of the tool that it takes for people to share their lived experience and really maximize each story's impact. Ultimately, it's really, you know, they have to drive diversity like any other business imperative. So that's two. The third principle is, and it's good business too. And here, what I talk about is that without a compelling reason for change, 70% of change efforts will fail. So DI can't be sort of bolted or siloed. It has to be um, congruent with the organization's purpose and how business is done and the regional trends. But there has to be compelling change narrative. The fourth principle is go deep, wide, and inside out. And we know that organizations are comprised of these interconnected systems that work in concert. And DI has to be infused into all those policies, systems, structures. We have to take a systems approach. You know, when I talk about wide, it's DEI, embedding DI wide through scaling governance framework, deep by seeding the organization with local allies and change agents that you just mentioned, and inside out by integrating it into all the systems internally and externally, what matters and counts it. And, you know, metrics clearly provide the spotlight problem areas, they provide possible solutions, but they're also instruments for change. And they're most effective when they're aligned with the local context and there's accountability. So those are the five principles. Make it local. Leaders change to lead change. And it's good business to go deep, wide, and inside out, know what matters, and count it. And those five principles really 
provided a through line that allowed me to do this global work. You know, but you really laid out, again, and you say it's not a checklist. It's not something that somebody could just pick up and follow because every situation is unique. One of the aspects, though, I want to emphasize is that, so why do this? We've seen a major shift in, especially here in the United States, in our society, that consumers are now using their purchasing power to influence what companies are doing. And they're becoming increasingly vocal about not buying from companies with values not aligned with theirs. Perhaps we're seeing mm-hmm. that most in millennials and uh, Gen Z that really are speaking up and saying, wait a minute, you know, you have to change or we won't buy your product. So it's not just a nice to have, a way to get re- good recruiting. Those are all things that, yes, are great outcomes. But really what it comes down to is, you know, having a social conscious is going to be a necessity of doing business, I think, in the future. I think you're absolutely right about that. And I would just say that, you know, stakeholders are proliferating. So customers, clients are one stakeholder group. And they're making their preferences heard, whether it's through social media or through their pocketbooks, as you said. Mm. Even the investor community is asking for transparency and publishing the data. And all these stakeholder groups are holding organizations accountable. So, you know, we've seen the CEOs have made statements in the U.S. in particular. They've given 200, over $200 billion to social justice causes. There have been a flurry of appointments of diversity professionals. And all this is a good start. But, you know, it can seem like enough, and it really is not, because sometimes giving money is the easiest thing to do and talk is cheap. So this has to be followed by actions and demonstrable progress to go from what I call performative actions to sustainable progress. And the stakeholder groups, I mean, you mentioned consumers, but their employees also were holding their leaders accountable to follow through, or they will, you know, they'll leave the organization. We've seen this happening with the Great Resignation with over 15 million workers quitting their jobs since April 2021. Right. And the data tells us that employees, especially BIPOC employees, are leaving because they don't feel a sense of belonging. In other words, the organization's cultures are not inclusive enough to keep them there, and so they're leaving. And then, as you mentioned, we have the millennials and Gen Zs who are opting to work for purpose-driven companies. So I think there's a tremendous talent shortage, and this is unless organizations pay attention to their values and being purpose-driven and committed to DEI, employees will leave. And they will lose consumers as well. And, you know, it's been magnified recently with the younger generation with, and with all consumers reassessing what's important to them in light, in light of the pandemic. Employees, community advocates, consumers all expect organizations to take purpose-driven, unequivocal stands on issues of social justice. And, you know, leaders cannot get away by making faux pas and you know, expecting to kind of slide by because these things become viral with social media. And that, again, then, you know, reinforces I'll sort of vote with my pocketbook syndrome, if you will. So Exactly. So I have a couple of questions for you. What did you discover about yourself in terms of the most joy in your career as you wrote your book? Mm, that's a great question. So, you know, I've said that what I believe is that transformation happens at the intersection of systems and people. So for me, it's the people that I impacted that gave me the most joy. Either those whose careers were advanced, and, you know, there's several people who I've 
mentored and coached both within my organization where I work, but also externally in the DI profession and beyond. You know, individuals who've come and said to me that, look, you know, we would never have had this career, you know, 10 years ago if the culture of the organization had not changed so dramatically. So it's it's those things that gave me the most joy. And also, in terms of people piece, those whose mindsets I changed, you know, leaders, and you know, I can name them one after the other, leaders who were really resistant to diversity, equity, and inclusion, either because they didn't see the benefit to themselves or they just didn't buy into the data or the facts. And fast forward to when they retired, the only thing that some of these leaders have chosen to do was to be on DEI boards, advisory boards. And several leaders have gone on to other organizations and continue to reach out to say, hey, you know, this organization I've just joined really doesn't have anything in this space. Can you speak with the HR person or can you speak with the CEO? Can you speak with some of the leaders to see how they can get started in this space? So it's that kind of thing you know, that really gives me the greatest joy in terms of people that I've impacted. Did you come across anything that gave you some regrets? (laughs) Where do I start? There's one big one that I can speak to, which is my regret is that I did not address issues of race substantively globally. You know, this is really the most difficult identity dimension, particularly globally. It's sensitive, it's politically charged, it's often talked about in code or not talked about at all. And I chipped away at it in Europe through a refugee employment program that provided jobs that expanded empathy at work for refugees. And this was a, a great entry point in the discussion of race because refugees frequently belong to a visibly non-dominant group. And I'm, you know, I'm very pleased with that about that work that we did. But The regret is that we didn't make more headway in our anti-racism work. And then as I started writing the book, I realized that I was not alone. You know, that most leaders and change agents really feel stymied about addressing race bias. And there are very few sort of best practice examples. And part of the reason for that is because race and racism are both so universal, but it's in-house experience, but it's also very specific. And each context has its own dominant and non-dominant groups that differ. So, you know, I mean, I think race and racism are very fluid and they're very much contoured to a location's culture and history. So you can't use a cookie-cut approach to dismantling it. And very frequently tangled up with ethnicity and religion and caste, which take more prominence than race. So in the U.S., race has been the driving social force, but elsewhere, it's one of several identities that can divide and play maybe a less prominent role. So to expect racism to be expressed in a manner that we're familiar with causes us to miss sort of entry points like, you know, discrimination against the lowest caste or religious minorities in India, where I come from. And I think to complicate things, it's highly emotional, politically charged. But I think we have an opening now, more recently, post the murder of George Floyd and the protests going viral globally, it's opened up a space that was previously closed. So long answer to your question, my one regret is that I did not address issues of race and racism more substantively globally. But look, as you point out, it's such a sensitive issue and it's oftentimes difficult to confront, but we're seeing more and more 
openness and leaders changing their perspective. Last question. What one word describes who you are? Ooh, um, I would say uh, tenacious, determined. I think that's that's what I think this this work takes. Um, you really just have to be at it all the time. Uh, it takes a great amount of tenacity. So I would say determined and tenacious. I don't think I don't take things personally. I just have a a view of the vision and keep you know, chipping away towards it. I remember this quote from Dorothy Height, who was a civil rights leader, and she was 95 when I heard her talk, and she said that leaders are dreamers with shovels in their hands. Hmm. And I think that's what you need to do in this work. You have to dream big, have a vision, but then sort of chunk things out in bite size and meet people where they are, but it takes tremendous tenacity and determination. And emotional intelligence, I would say. More than one word, but that's, that's <laughs> well, it. <laughs> look, look uh, tenacity is, is as important as anything else, and that's whether you're a leader or an entrepreneur or to anything in life that's worth doing. You have to be passionate about it, and you need tenacity to move forward. Rahini, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Thank you. Thanks, John. Great conversation. Thank you. The focus of DEI initiatives is to work with corporate leaders to align their company's culture with its mission to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion. As Dr. Anand stated, organizational culture is found in its values, beliefs, and patterns of thinking. The culture is imbued with the leader's perspectives and often represents dominant societal values and norms. Therefore, leadership plays a critical role in changing the culture. To advance any DEI program, Dr. Anand shared five fundamental principles that form the framework for successful change. Number one, make it local. Understand localized social standards and norms informed by the culture, language, and laws. Consider how identity is defined and perceived. Who are the dominant and subordinate groups? Once you've developed an understanding, engage and empower local change agents to find the right starting points. Number two, leaders change to lead change. To fully embrace DEI, leaders may require a disruption of their worldview. Since most have not experienced the inequities and prejudices of the underrepresented groups, Dr. Anand found it important to have them hear the personal stories from those affected. This provides a genuine and often passionate view of the issues that helps drive DEI and treat it like any other business imperative. Number three, and it's good business too. Create a compelling change narrative. Several studies have shown that DEI drives improved business outcomes, like increased employee retention, innovation, and financial performance. Number four, go deep, wide, and inside out. DEI needs to be infused in the company's policies and systems. Empower change agents and local allies to foster change and have outside governance to keep the company accountable. Number five, know what matters and count it. The adage, what gets measured gets done, seems appropriate in this context. Develop key performance indicators to measure progress and have well-defined goals and objectives that are publicized and well understood. Finally, Dr. Anand reminded us that DEI is a personal journey that requires tenacity. Have a big dream, a vision, and be prepared to work hard. She shared the words of the civil rights leader, Dorothy Heights, leaders are dreamers with shovels in their hands. Thanks to Rohini Anand for being with us and sharing her valuable insights. 
This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.